In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I just shut my phone off to make sure it's on silent. Only one person all time has ever called me during church. Telemarketers somehow know I'm a pastor, so they don't even do that. My sister calls me during church. This happened like three times, so I've got to make sure that this is, this is on mute. She doesn't listen to my sermons online, so don't worry. She's not going to think I threw her under the bus. My mom does, though, so she might tell her, so we'll see how that goes. That goes. So we're, on, uh, we're talking about and finishing up our series, Different Faces, the Same Jesus, and we covered a few of them, and you can kind of vaguely see those faces. It's not as bright as we'd like. We talked about a Roman centurion. This was a good guy. This is a Gentile guy that the Jewish people really, really liked, and from their perspective, they're like, this guy does not deserve to have this bad stuff befall him. His very favorite, uh, favorite servant was sick, and so Jesus, Jesus you've got to step in and help them. We could relate to that. Uh, we talked about uh, the widow at Nain. So this is the widow who had not only lost her husband, now lost her son. And it is this tragedy that I think we can, we can embrace that too, to think like all of us know people or, or ourselves have suffered loss and to know that Jesus steps into their life. And then finally, the woman with a reputation that nobody wanted. Uh, we just touched on last week. This was a woman that was known as the sinner. Uninvited, and just imagine that, uninvited goes into probably face one of her biggest fears of all time, if you were this person known as the sinner or that woman, to go into the house of the person who solidified that reputation, this Pharisee, to go into his house, and why? Why would she face this judgment, and why would she face all the shame and the embarrassment of going into this house to see Jesus, right? And so that's this amazing story. I think of courage that she's willing to go there because she needs to hear, just like all of us, uh, to face our sin and to face our shame, to put that out there so that Jesus can say that you're forgiven. Uh, powerful thing. Today we're finishing up, and this is the confession of Jesus' disciples. And we're going to look at a couple different things. And I want to give a, there's a lot of kind of background you need to know to understand some of this. So it's going to get a, just a hair complex, but I think at the end it's going to make a lot of sense. So what had happened is Jesus, at the time, they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. This is happening around the world. And just before our section, Jesus does a very, very famous, uh, a very famous uh, one of his miracles, which is the feeding of 5,000 people. So at the end of that feeding of the 5,000, here's the instance that happens. So they discover this. They're looking for this person to help them from the Romans. He feeds the 5,000, and this is from the account in John. It says, uh, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So the people had this misunderstanding of who Jesus was. And they're not the only ones. So if you follow the tracks in the gospel, and Herod is an example. So Herod the Tetrarch, this is not Herod who uh, was, when Jesus was born, this is different. This is the one that killed John the baptizer. So here's what he said. He's like, okay, who is this guy that is coming? And he said he's trying to figure this out. Oh, I knit. mine in the back had the answer in it already. So I, I got to look at the side ones. So they intended to make him by force. And so Herod the Tetrarch's trying to figure out who Jesus is. And they ask people, and they say, well, you know, some think he is John the baptizer come back from the dead. Uh, some people think he's Elijah. Some people think that he's like one of the prophets of old. There's this concept they didn't know who Jesus was, and they're trying to figure this out. This is where we pick it up in John, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 9. So once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked, who do the crowds say that I am? And I tried to explain this a little bit with the kids, but Jesus is just trying to figure out, like, who does the nation think I am? Like, what's their opinion? What do they think? Because he has stepped into this world, he's doing miracles, he's uh, teaching with authority, and he's kind of wondering, in the disciples' opinion, do, who do people think that I am? And so the answer is actually remarkably close 
to what John the Baptist, I mean, what uh, Herod thought. So they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Does that sound familiar? It's literally the exact three phrases that Herod was trying to figure out. So this, I would say, was universal. If you would go at Jesus' time, at this point in his ministry, and you would just ask, you know, some person by the street, you know, at the falafel stand or something like that, and you said, hey, who do you think this guy is? They'd say, I would say, maybe John the baptizer or one of the prophets or I don't know. Like they're still trying to figure this all out. Opinion, though, I think is a funny thing. So if we would say universally, is public opinion accurate? There gets to be this point like when you're functioning that public opinion, it feels accurate. So I got a couple examples here to help you out. Here's example number one. Do dogs really, you know, like one dog year is really seven equivalent years in humans. I believe this up until I did some research like yesterday. No, not quite, not quite. But there's this idea you're like, oh, seven years. This must have been done through some scientific study or something like that. There is no scientific study and it's not actually true. So if you look at my nice graph here, very accurate, made in Microsoft Paint. Uh, so if you look at, s- I got to make sure no one is this old, okay? 90, okay, 85, 95 years old? Okay, no one here is 95, right? Okay, so most of us will be dead at 95. I don't want to make anyone depressed if they're 95 and they're like, what? <laughs> so, all right. So at 95 years old, most of us will be dead. You notice at the age of the dog, that goes by weight. So if you have this tiny little chihuahua dog, that's the purple, uh, like the cat dog. And then if you have like a normal good dog, like that's between you know, 21 to 50 pounds. And then you have these massive dogs. Then you, I don't even know where you find a dog over 90 pounds. Like this would, it's like working out and taking stuff. But notice at the age 95, they actually hit it at different years. Does that make sense? The gist of it is this. That's not an accurate statement, even though this is collectively true. Take us back to like the 70s, the 80s, and I've shared this example before. What is the worst thing that you could eat in 1985? Fat. This was like moving into the 90s, you were not allowed to eat fat, and fat was terrible for you. So we had this whole big rush to try and get rid of anything fat, like low-fat butter and low-fat fat and low-fat bacon and low-fat, you know, like everything possible. And everyone's saying this is the worst thing that you could take for you. And so things that were actually turning out to be like okay for you would have been red vines, right? These come from outer space and they're made with corn syrup and dye. That's how they make these, but they taste so good, don't they? If you don't, don't do this unless you're trying to kill your pastor. But if you get one of those tubs, I can't buy them anymore because they have like one and it's just like, if crack is addictive, I don't actually know. But if crack is addictive, I'd assume it would be as addictive as red vines. That's what would happen. But always fat-free. Do you see that advertisement? Because during this time, the worst thing that you could possibly consume in your body was fat. And then universally, they said this is, is not good. Now there's studies very clearly that said the study that came out that changed this whole way that Americans eat was totally wrong. And so now if you read studies, they say fat is actually okay for you and in fact good for you and necessary. What's bad for you? Corn syrup and sugar. It's kind of disappointing for a lot of us. (laughs) So what does this mean? So this is an opinion, right? So then you you gauge this opinion, you talk to people, you try and find an opinion. Has anyone ever done the BMI test? How do you feel about the BMI test? I did the BMI test and I put accurate stats in here. So this is my BMI test. 212 pounds as of this testing. Six foot two and a half, I've shrunk. I used to be six three back in the day, but now I've shrunk as I get older. I'm overweight. 
so I started doing the calculations. I have to lose 15 pounds in order to be considered normal. I don't think I believe that. I don't think I want to believe that because that's really depressing, right? And maybe there's a correlation between red vines and this. But ultimately, that's an opinion, right? So then when I go to the doctor and they do the BMI test and they're like, oh, I've never had the doctor go, ooh, you're pretty overweight. I'm like, I got extra long limbs. I got fat bones. That's what I have, right? So I don't know what the deal is, but what is this saying? That there are certain opinions that people have that aren't necessarily true. That's really what we're getting at. So you're going to meet people, you're going to talk to people, they're going to have opinions, and they're going to say that this is fact or this is, uh, this is how it goes. And it, you have to be able to discern those things. That's why I was sitting down with my son when he said that's an annoying voice and I had to clarify that it's not necessarily a fact, right? This matters when we talk about Christianity because you're going to run into opinions. So if we just ask collectively, who is Jesus, would we get different opinions? Sure. So we're moving from like food, which isn't really the, the age of a dog, which isn't a big deal, to food, which isn't a big deal. Then you get into things that are even more uh, like confusing. Fashion is probably the most confusing thing to me of all. So I remember distinctly my brother, I can't, dis- this would have been about 30 years ago. He's 50, so it had been 30 years ago. He came back from, he went to Europe. He comes back and he's wearing a type of sandal. What kind of sandal this would have been 30 years ago? Birkenstocks, yeah, did they look cool when he came home? I remember thinking those are the ugliest sandals I've ever seen in my life. Six months later, I had a pair, right? So this is what, this is, and if you universally, you t- be honest with me now. The first time you saw a pair of Ugg boots, who here thought those are the cutest shoes I've ever seen? Now, how many of here own Ugg type boots? Right? I, this, this was just mind-boggling to me. I'm like, did anyone have design class who made these boots? Like, there's no style to them. They just, like, put them around, and now, like, people have Ugg sandals, right? <laughs> or not sandals, they're like these nighttime <laughs> things. So, so what happens is opinion shifts, and things become more accepted and sometimes unacceptable. And I think we see this a little bit more with serious things like morals, have you looked at the landscape of where we live and just seen how morals have shifted? What once was uh, lined up with what God's word said has since changed. Could you say that you've witnessed that? The public opinion has changed. And so wh- where are we getting with all this? Ultimately, when we come to Christianity, determining who Jesus is does not matter what the public opinion is. So this is why Jesus talks to Peter and he says, okay, his disciples, who, do you, who does the world think I am? And they go, okay, John the baptizer. And some think, uh, the, you know, one of the old prophets, but he says, what about you? And that's his question. What about you, he says. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. That's right. The next verse is confusing, though, because Jesus says to them very strictly, if you looked ahead, Jesus says very strictly, I don't want you to share this with anyone. Does that make any sense that if this is a true statement that God, this means chosen, anointed, when you became a prophet or you became a king, he would be anointed. That means God has chosen you. Does that make any sense that Jesus would say about this true statement, I don't want you to tell anyone about it? We've got to talk about that. Okay, here's where this is kind of coming from. When they used the word Messiah, it was very, very loaded. And so at that time, there was this expectation that even if they got this right, okay, so if you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, who is he, who is he, they say he's God's Messiah, and that's absolutely true. There still is confusion about what that means to be God's chosen one. 
So when he fed the 5,000 people, what did they want to do? They wanted to make him a king. They were confused about what this Messiah was going to do and what he's going to bring. There's another time where they're somewhat confused. So they're going through this whole process trying to figure out who he is. And he's trying to say, I don't want you to tell anyone that I'm Messiah because I think they're going to be confused. And I'll give you an example. Are there terms that you use that when someone says it, there's such a big deal you can't get by it? When they use descriptors of themselves. So I'm going to give you a couple benign ones that probably aren't a big deal. You meet a friend and they say, I'm a Republican. You instantly have some thoughts, right? What happens if they say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Libertarian, right? You instantly have these thoughts. Is it such a big deal that you can't get around it? You're not supposed to move any, don't make any facial features right now or anything like that, right? That's, I'm not trying to reveal that. But are there phrases that are hard to get around? What happens if you meet someone, they say, I'm a feminist? Is that a, a there's, there's a, it's such a loaded term that when someone says that about themselves, it's hard to get around your envisionment, what that equals. So this happens a lot. Sometimes it's really, really benign if you meet someone and they say, hey, I'm a Vikings fan, right? And that, so people can't get around that. They're like, how is that possible? Who would do such a thing to their, you know, what, what kind of child did you have and why was your parents abusive? You know, why would, like, this, you're trying to, you can't get quite around that. There's a few things, or I'll give an example of teachers. Teachers, the hardest thing that happens when you're a teacher is naming your kids. Like, you, you go and teach and you love kids and it's going great, and then you have, give birth to a child. If you've ever dealt with small children, 95% of the names are instantly eliminated. So I work at, I, I volunteer, not quite volunteer, but I work one day a week teaching Latin, and so I have 200 kids that cycle through. If Amy and I had any more kids, we're down to like two names, like Mordecai would be left, I think, and uh, I don't know what's left, because every single time I'd say any name, don't even say them out loud, any single name, instantly I you know, picture the naughty kid who wouldn't pay attention. So how could I have my own kid where I'm like, oh, I love you so much, you, right? Like, what do you do, right? There are names that are so hard to get around. The name of Messiah is one of those names. So at a time, this is real history, right? At a time when the Jewish people longed for freedom, they were encapsulated and captured in a sense and controlled by the Romans, and they longed for a Messiah to show up. They longed for this Messiah who had the power to break free from these shackles. They longed for this chosen one to, to, to come and destroy the Romans and, and bring the Jewish people back to life. But when Jesus talks about it, very rarely does he even say, I don't even know if there's an instance where Jesus refers to himself directly as the Messiah. He does it indirectly, and I'll give you a couple examples. Here's one. Uh, you know, the, there's a story of the woman at the Samaritan well, uh, the Samaritan woman. She's at the well, and she's had, I think, seven husbands, it says, or a lot of live-in situations. It's kind of a mess. She's going to the well at the wrong time of day. She doesn't want to interact with any human being. And then here comes Jesus, and she's talking about, well, I know this Messiah is going to come, and this is how it goes. Uh, the woman said, I know that Messiah, this is after discussions, called Christ, that means anointed. That's the same exact word, just one is Hebrew and one is Greek. Is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So there's times indirectly uh, when he's being uh, questioned by Pontius Pilate, and he says, okay, tell us the truth. Are you Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, you have said so. But when he refers to himself to his disciples, almost always, he doesn't say, and the Messiah, will, this will happen to the Messiah, and the Messiah this, or the Messiah that. Instead, he says, the Son of Man. Because that word is so loaded 
even for his disciples. So I'll give you an example if we speed ahead. Jesus um, dies on the cross, and then at his ascension, it's called. So this is 40 days after he rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven, and he's getting ready to go. And he gives them, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they were like, got it. And then everything is great. And one of the disciples goes, okay, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of God on earth? And he's like, oh, for crying out loud. Like, we've just covered this. I am not here as a physical king. I'm here as a spiritual king. People could not get by that. So in my opinion, that's exactly why Jesus says to them, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone that he is the Messiah because they had to discover who he really was. Who's the most influential people in your whole life? So if you just, like, name who are the most influential people in your life, who would they be? People that, like, you, there's a lot of decisions you won't even make. You won't buy a car. You won't go do stuff unless you talk to this person. Can you think of those? Do you have friends like that? Uh, maybe it's your parents, right, before you make this decision. You read in Proverbs, it's really good to get the a wise person gets counsel from other people. I'm guessing that most of you have one, and it's not all the same person for all things, right? Um, because your parents, you may look to and say, I really need some help if I should buy this or not, and then your parents are the ones that fed you red vines, right? So you can't talk to them about, like, food, but you talk to them about life decisions. Do you have people like that? Uh, what about work? Like, you're going to make some big move at work. Is there someone that you talk to before you do that? If you're going to switch jobs, who would you call? Maybe that would help. If you're going to move, who would you call? These are all people that matter, right? There's people, and if I think of my own life, there's people that if I have a biking question I talk to, if I've got like a pastor question I've got, I talk to, uh, like how to work with a vicar, or there's somebody else I talk to, you reach out to these people and their opinion matters. And so we got to, we notice this progression that's happening in this text today. Um, Jesus comes to them and says, who does, who does the world say that I am? And I think most of us would say the public opinion about who Jesus is doesn't really matter about my faith, right? Most of us aren't checking polls to see if I still believe in God as Jesus as my Savior. We don't do that. We don't check the, you know, the, the cool graphics they have in USA Today or anything like that. But does it matter when someone in your life is a big deal and they start to see things differently? I think that changes things, right? Um, before you make a big move, if you really look up to your parents and you call them, even though we're adults, right? I'm 40, before I would, um, 43. Um, before I would go and talk and take a move, I would talk to my parents. Like, I don't live in their house. I haven't lived in the house in 20-some years, but I still call and say, is this a good idea? And I'm just waiting for, and they get to the point now where they say, you know, we've got a couple options, you've got to make a choice. But what happens if they really put their foot down and said, I think this is a terrible idea? Some of you have faced this with your boyfriend or girlfriend, right? Like people you really care about, and you're like, okay, I think this is the one. And then you go to talk to your parents, and you get this sense that they don't really love, and they're not totally as excited as you are, and it's really frustrating. You're like, why do you control my life, and why are you doing this? Has this ever happened to you? You ever buy something that you know is stupid? And then you go and somehow, you don't tell the people that, you, that are influenced in your life. You don't tell them. They just discover it, and then you just figure out that they're mad, and they're like, it's none of your business. Well, there's a reason you didn't tell them because you kind of knew that it was stupid, right? This is where it happens, and I bring this up because the disciples come and they very confidently say, all right, I think you're the Messiah, God's chosen one. But at that time, who do you think determined what was right and wrong when it came to religion? Like, who would be the biggest opinions? Like, if you're going to try and find out, like, accurately, 
what it meant to be a Jewish person, who do you think they talked to? They didn't talk to the disciples. They weren't disciples yet. Like, they're no big deal. They didn't write books or the Gospels yet. Jesus was there. But, I mean, who would you talk to? The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And so Peter makes this bold, bold statement, and Jesus explains. And I just recognize the gravity of this. So it would you be saying, I have found the person I want to marry, and someone goes, I just want you to know something. Your grandma, your mom and dad, and your best friend all think it's dumb. I'm going to move. And they say, yeah, your, your childhood friends are going to think this is a terrible idea. Your coworker that you talk to all the time and your spouse is going to think this is a terrible idea. Jesus' disciples stand up and they say, Jesus, you are the Christ. And we're like, yes. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. Rejected is a word that means found wanting. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you're about to make this big confession you did. This is a good thing. But your opinion on this, your observation that I am the true Messiah, the one who's come to take all the sins of the world, no one else is going to agree with you. This is where I think we can relate with Peter on some level. Because if you are a Christian, and if you look and say Jesus really is the Christ, I guarantee people you love a lot don't agree with you. And it could be your spouse. It could be your parents. It could be your best friend. Right? And you would say, this is what Jesus means to me. And they just say, I don't see the same thing. Sometimes, that somebody's you. And you struggle with this idea of who you are as an intellectual. And you struggle with this idea that I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to fall for that. And you constantly are battling yourself to say, I, I, I don't want to know that this is true. But God has revealed something to you that is so amazing that there really was a Jesus who came to this earth. There really was. And the opinion of the world does not matter. The opinion of the people that you hold in the highest esteem does not matter. What matters is what the Holy Spirit has convinced you, which is a fact and not an opinion that Jesus is the Christ. Right? This is, this is an awesome thing. And Jesus says, wait, there's a little bit more. I wish Christianity just came down to confessing in my heart that Jesus was my Savior and my life just went as normal. And Jesus is sitting down with Peter to say, okay, the world doesn't agree with you. The people you hold in high esteem aren't going to agree with you. And not only that, but whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you make this bold confession, If you say that Jesus is the Savior, if you recognize that your own sinfulness push you from God, if you recognize and say that Jesus is the Messiah and he's going to determine who my life is and who I am and where my value is, not only are you rejected by the world, but your world's going to be hard. It's going to be disappointing. You're going to have to face people that you really look up to and have them roll their eyes. You're going to have to get up in the morning and say, why am I doing this? You're not going to get everyone patting you on the back to say that's a great decision, right? If you adopt a dog, everyone loves you. If you help out an orphan, people love it. I've never met anyone who goes, that's the worst thing you could ever have done. 
right? That, that is not happening, but it is going to happen if you say who Jesus really is. Does any of that matter? The only opinion that matters is we have a Savior in heaven who looks down on you and says, you have said the right thing. You're not determining if Jesus really is the Savior or not. That's a fact. That's already determined. What you're determining is what it means to you. And God looks at your heart, the faith that was given by the Holy Spirit, and says, go out into this world, face rejection, and face opinions that are contrary, and face frustration. But know that there is a day you'll be with me, and it'll be confirmed that what you believe is true, absolutely true, and you are forgiven, and you're with me forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, Holy Spirit, sometimes we don't recognize what a big deal it is to say that you are the Savior, that you really came to this earth, that this is true. The world has a different opinion, and more and more so, it seems, the longer we're on this planet. They have different ideas about what you say is true and what they think. Uh, the, The people sometimes that we look up to a lot have a different opinion, and that can be frustrating, disheartening, and we just wish that we were on the same page. But all of that doesn't matter. What matters is the question you asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And every single one of us, convinced by the Holy Spirit, says you are truly God. You are truly man who took our place on the cross so that we could live with you. Hold that in our heart and hold our value there instead of what other people think. We ask this in your name. Amen.